Welcome to Getting Curious. I'm Jonathan Van Ness, and every week I sit down for a 40-minute conversation with a brilliant expert to learn all about something that makes me curious. On today's episode, I'm joined by the Assistant Professor of Atmospheric Science at Colorado State University, Kristen Rasmussen, where I ask her, how can we get to cloud nine? Welcome to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Van Ness. I'm so excited to welcome this week's guest. She is an assistant professor of atmospheric science at Colorado State University, Professor Kristen Rasmussen. How are you, Kristen? Hi, Jonathan. I'm doing great. Can I, wait, I should say Professor Rasmussen because <laughs> you have worked hard for this title. What, what do you prefer? Uh, Kristen is great. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. okay, I guess... I do have like a lot more like hard hitting, like cloud and journalistic questions later. Not literally hard hitting. I say it like jokingly, but I have to start with a literal joke. First question, because this is why I'm obsessed with clouds. After you saw Twister, have you ever been the same since? I think that I am actually an atmospheric scientist because of Twister. I was in the sixth grade when I saw it. And that's a very impressionable time in in uh, in someone's uh, growth. And I saw Twister and I actually saw a tornado in sixth grade. Uh, I grew up in Boulder, Colorado. It was very rare. And I, I looked out the window and I saw a tornado and I was hooked. So for me, Twister was a life changing movie. Uh, it changed my perspective of, you know, strong, positive, you know, women role models in the field, doing field work, throwing instruments in crazy weather conditions. And that's kind of I think it launched my uh, interest in, in the career I'm in. Um, can I just say I have never started with like the million dollar question. It was an accident, but I also have been permanently changed from this movie. I was like, I remember, I think I was in like the fourth grade, the year that it came out and it was on, it was in the movie theaters for a really long time. And I literally learned where the emergency exits in the movie theater were so that I could like put a rock in there. Like when I left the last time with my parents, I like left this like rock there so I could like put it in the door and like sneak back in. Cause there like, wasn't an alarm. Cause I went, ended up seeing like nine times. Like I was obsessed wow. with it in the theaters. Like, Oh my God. So now you literally became an atmospheric, a scientist. I did. Yes, it's been it's been a dream come true. I've been able to do things in the field that I never imagined possible. Uh, we do amazing research. We go into the field. We bring instruments to all over the world. We went to Argentina a couple of years ago, uh, basically uh, chasing storms and, and trying to understand how they work. It's 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 really an amazing career. OK, so I didn't mean to dive straight into Twister, but as long as we're at it. So is there like could there really be a Dorothy esque sort of like machine like where you go like drop off a little thing with those little balloon things? Or the little, like, plastic, like, mini thingies, like, in the movie? So, uh, yeah, at the time, uh, it was kind of a kind of a, a concept that they came up with for the movie. But uh, I've heard of, actually, in just recent years, that some scientists are actually trying to put small sensors into, uh, you know, into storms, uh, kind of like they did in Twister. So it's kind of generated a lot of interest because many of my atmospheric science colleagues became interested, especially ones around my age, became interested in the field because of uh, Twister and the excitement about severe weather. So there are efforts to do this, uh, but it's not uh, that common. But I, th I think that people are thinking about trying to do something like this for research purposes. Uh, amazing. Well, I'm glad that I'm not the only one that's like super obsessed with that movie. So then the other thing was, is like what really started this episode and why I was so curious about it was Twister at first. Then it was just like looking at clouds all the time because they're so pretty and they're also different. And 
why are some some ways and why are some the other ways and also like severe clouds and like so I just I got questions coming out of my ears but in order for us to even get there like what's the basic like tea on clouds that we need before we're gonna dive right in like there's like eight kinds there's like the cumulus there's the nimbus what else is there Mm -hmm. yeah so cumulus are kind of like those kind of popcorn cotton ball like clouds that you see uh they're really pretty see them uh you know in the beach or kind of uh you know wherever you are uh that we also have clouds that look more like layers those are stratus clouds so they they look more like layers it's kind of like if you're think about seattle where you have you know it's kind of rainy it's (sighs) the whole sky is gray those are like layered stratus clouds uh, there's all kinds of clouds. There's, there's, you know, uh, we, in our field, we have a glossary of clouds. There's so many types. And that is one of the things that keeps us all really excited about studying clouds is that they're so different. There's so many types. Uh, they happen in different levels of the atmosphere. Uh, where I live here in Colorado, we have really fascinating clouds that happen because of the waves that come off of the mountains. We get kind of lenticular. They're called lenticular uh. clouds. They look like, they kind of look like UFOs. Um, and actually the first UFO sightings that happened, uh, in the 1950s actually were attributed to lenticular clouds downstream of Mount Rainier in, uh, in uh, Washington state. So there's some amazing d- a variety of clouds in the, in the world. Uh, and they, uh, where they occur is basically determined by a lot of times topography, by land, by a lot of the moisture content and the air itself. So it's a, it's, it's a fascinating field, uh, because there's so much variety. Okay. I also remember. I think cirrus clouds. Are yes. those a cloud? Yes, cirrus clouds happen really high up in the atmosphere. Uh, they are composed primarily of ice crystals, so they have more of a streaky. Uh, we call them mare's tails. Sometimes they kind of look like uh, horse tails. They're really streaky and kind of wispy. Yes, yes, yes. They yes, they look wispy because they're primarily composed of ice crystals. Whereas kind of the, the cumulus popcorn types of clouds, those are composed mostly of uh, liquid water drops, and so they look kind of more bubbly uh, and that kind of thing. So the, the look of the cloud can also tell you about what's uh, inside. Uh, I can't believe cirrus clouds are made of ice. So if you're in a plane, like one of those like planes in the movies that like the pilots like head is out and like the person's in the back, you know, because like they're like, you know, like. Yeah, yeah. So if you drove through a cirrus cloud in a plane, it would literally be little ice crystals. That's correct. Yep. You would you would actually see little ice crystals. And there are actually research aircraft uh, in atmospheric science where they put instruments on the outside of the plane. They fly through clouds and they collect particles or they take images of the particles. So you can see the different types of crystals. There's, you know, long ones and short ones. You can also tell the sizes of the, the liquid drops if you fly through a lower cloud. So there's all kinds of really exciting ways to understand what's inside of the cloud. OK, I have another question. So is there any difference between, I know you said atmosphere, but what about like Northern hemisphere versus Southern hemisphere? Does that yes. change clouds? So, um, well, we, we see similar types of clouds in the Northern and the Southern hemispheres, uh, just based on kind of whether you're near the tropics or then you get near the poles, you get different types of clouds based on the temperature uh, and a lot oh of, my the God, properties really? of the atmosphere. <laughs> Yes. Uh, and so, uh, but we do see similar types of clouds in the Southern Hemisphere as well. Uh, but uh, some of the storms that I study, I study some of the deepest convective storms that happen on the entire planet. Uh, they occur in subtropical South America. So in like Argentina, Uruguay, um, this region is an incredibly productive region in terms of really d- deep, severe weather, giant thunderstorms with hail and tornadoes and floods. And so, uh, you know, Studying how clouds vary across the globe is one of the ways we can learn about clouds in general. And that's one of the things I'm passionate about. Oh, my God, question. What deepest, what 
Deepest what? What? So the deepest thunderstorms in the world. So they're the tallest uh, thunderstorms. The taller the storm is and the more intense the storm is in terms of how deep it is in the atmosphere, uh, the more likely it is to produce really large hail, heavy rainfall, uh, tornadoes, severe weather. Um, and so we look at the depth and the intensity of storms in order to understand, you know, where do we have the most intense severe weather? And so uh, I actually do research using uh, some of the first space-borne uh, precipitation radar observations. So these are active sensors that are sending out pulses that take basically, uh, you can imagine this as like an MRI through a cloud. It's looking at the full internal components of the cloud and we can tell how intense it is and how deep it is. Uh, research from that satellite showed that South America has some of the most intense storms anywhere on the planet. And this was previously unknown uh, before about 2006. And I've spent my entire time when I started as a graduate student in 2007, all the way through now. And then I mentioned we actually went down there with giant radars and, and weather balloons and things like that a couple of years ago uh, to study this really unique population of, of really intense storms. Okay. Maybe I just misheard, but I feel like when you said like deepest something, something, I feel like there was like a $10 science word that I hadn't heard before. Like the world's deepest something storms, or did you say like just like deepest severe weather? Maybe that was what I may have said. I may have said convective thunderstorms. Yes. Convective. Yes. Yes. So, so what is that? Uh, yes. So convection is uh, essentially, if you imagine, uh, if you have, you know, a war, a of air mass that gets warm, so it gets warm and it's, it's absorbing solar inform, uh, uh, energy. The warm air mass wants to rise up in the atmosphere, so that's called convection. And so when we have really strong heating of the surface, we have really buoyant uh, and kind of strong motions that go up in the atmosphere. This creates really vigorous updrafts, really strong clouds, and this supports things like tornadoes and hill formation and, and uh, other severe weather-producing phenomena. So we look for how deep these storms are in order to understand their potential for producing severe weather. And so South America having some of the deepest storms uh, indicates that this region has, you know, a the, the world's most severe weather impacts. And this is actually true. We, we have verified uh, that, that this is likely the case. So when you say deepest, that means like how thick the clouds are, like how vertically thick the clouds are? Exactly. Yes. So the cloud extends from, uh, you know, something called the cloud base, which is where the air mass as it rises up, it becomes saturated. Once it becomes saturated, further cooling causes the water vapor to condense into small water droplets. The small water droplets are basically what are composed of the clouds you see outside, unless they're serious, which are ice, uh, like we talked about. Um, and the uh, as the air continues to rise, it creates more cloud. And the, the 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 deeper the cloud is, the more space there is to produce large precipitation particles, hail. Uh, you know, the updrafts have to be really, really strong in order to become such a tall storm. And all of these things are connected to the intensity of the storm uh, that that relates to us on the surface with severe weather impacts like hail and rain and and, and flooding. So once the um, cloud becomes saturated and it starts making the water droplets, is that just what rain is then? Um, so the cloud droplets are really small. What happens when you create rain is that these little cloud droplets start to collect together. So they run into each other in the updrafts and they start to create larger and larger particles. They start to rain out when they're large enough to basically have enough mass to fall through the any up, upward motion. So uh, and so they have to become large oh. enough in order to fall to the fall to the ground through the air mass that's, that's moving up uh, in the atmosphere. Because I feel like sometimes on road trips, like you can see like the like the columns of rain coming like down below, like the clouds, like you can see like where it's stopping and starting. So that's just yes. like where all the molecules were like running into each other a lot. And then it, yeah, what's this it, updraft yeah. deal? What's the deal with the updraft? 
so updrafts, it's representing so that convection uh, uh, topic that I just talked about. So when you have heating of the air mass, especially near the surface during the daytime, you know, the ground gets much hotter than mm-hmm. the air. We have air masses that rise up in the air. And so the fat it's this, basically the speed of how fast that air is moving up in the atmosphere. We call these updrafts. Um, and so uh, the stronger the updraft you have, uh, the more likely you are to have a really vigorous thunderstorm. Uh, so things like supercell thunderstorms that, that are known for creating tornadoes, especially in the United States, these have some of the strongest and most vigorous and also wide updrafts that we see. Uh, they're really strong. They're really uh, you know robust. And they, they can loft a lot of air and produce really vigorous motions that uh, produce lots of collisions of particles to create large drops, also hail. Um, and they also can produce uh, very strong things like tornadoes as well. So um, so we, we rate the strength of that uh, upward motion uh, and understand how severe the storm might become. How do you rate that? So uh, the way that we do this is we use, we typically use uh, instruments called radars. Uh, so these are basically active uh, sensors. You've probably seen some, uh, you know, the National Weather Service in the U.S. has, uh, you know, the, we're scattered all over the U.S., which is great. Um, it's an active uh, pulse. We set out a pulse. And what happens is that pulse is reflected off of all the particles in the cloud. And we actually measure what comes back to the radar. So we emit a pulse and then we measure what is reflected back to the radar. And if we have really large particles, and especially if we have large concentrations of particles in the um, in the cloud, we get a really big reflection, and so we get really high, uh, you know, is that uh, Doppler? It's a Doppler radar. The Doppler radar, we send out two pulses and we can tell how it's moving. So we, we send out one and we get that information back. We send out a second one and we compare, uh, you know, the time and where things have moved since the first gate, uh, since the first pulse. And we can see, okay, is it moving away from us? Is it moving toward us? And that's the way we can see little rotations with tornadoes. We can see where the storms are moving. So it's a really fantastic tool that we have available to us in the U.S. Um, and that's uh, the way that we really diagnose uh, the severity of uh, these weather systems. That makes so much sense. So on the weather channel, when they say about like that horseshoe and the Doppler, like the all dreaded horseshoe, really that's because like, that's like swirling. So like, that's just showing like the beginning of like the storm, like swirling. Exactly. Yep. You're seeing that kind of couplet, the rotation couplet. Uh, And so it's one way that you can kind of tell that there's a like really rapid rotation in the, um, you know, in the storm that might indicate the presence of a tornado. Oh my God, oh my God. Okay, so what type of clouds are the thunderstorms? Yes, so those are called cumulonimbus clouds. Uh, so mm. cumulus clouds can be anywhere from really small popcorn, uh, little clouds, all the way through really vigorous giant thunderstorms that extend from the cloud base, so where the air becomes saturated, all the way up to the tropopause. Uh, so that's the top of the bottom layer of the atmosphere. Uh, these are some of those really deep, giant thunderstorms that we talked about that, that happen in South America. Um, the nimbus part of the cumulonimbus uh, word actually means rain. So this means a giant, uh, you know, cumulus cloud that also is producing rain. Uh, so that's it, it all. All of the cloud, um, uh, the cloud names actually come from Latin, uh, Latin prefixes. And so nimbus means means rain. So what differentiates a cumulonimbus like thunderstorm cloud from just like a cumulus cloud? That's just like a happy little like that one looks like. You know, a dog, that one looks like, <laughs> oh, whatever, you know? 
so the difference is, is really uh, the fact that uh, the cumulonimbus clouds have to have enough vertical development in order to have lots of particle collisions to create large enough uh, raindrops to fall out and produce rainfall. So when you have a cumulus cloud that is producing rainfall, uh, that that we would call a cumulonimbus, and th- that term is actually specifically reserved for thunderstorms, so really intense thunderstorms that are uh, really very, very tall storms. Uh, they tend to have really strong updrafts and also produce lots of rainfall. Okay, so I've heard that you have, like, you, like a lot of these, like, really strong ones, the convection ones have happened in South America. Now, due to my obsession of Twister in the 90s, I think I learned because of that that, like, I'm, and I also, like, grew up in, like, not to brag, but I did grow up in Tornado Alley, honey. I have lived through, yes. I lived through, like, an F2 in 90-something, like, the front of our swim club got blown off, honey. It was major. It was amazing. And then after, like, we all came out of the basements, we just, like, walked all around the neighborhood with, like, the local TV news crews and, like, acted really shocked because we were just like, oh, my God, it's just like Twister. Um, but no one died and, like, everything was okay, so thank God. But we were just like, oh, my God, like, the broken glass. We couldn't believe it. It was amazing because, um, like, no one was hurt, but there was, like, just enough, like, to, like, oh, my God. So... I learned at that time, like, you know, how, like in the middle of like, like, well, yeah, for all of America, like North America, like the weather goes from like west to east. And then like, isn't like all through the globe, like, doesn't it go like different, like west to east and east to west, like based on your like, right? It does. Uh, yeah, that's absolutely right. Yes. Yeah, so in uh, kind of so uh, where you're talking about kind of in Tornado Alley and where we live in the U.S., a lot of our country is in the mid latitudes. So it's kind of uh, we were affected by the jet stream. So this is the large kind of uh, large jet stream that that basically flows across the entire northern hemisphere uh, that meanders. Of course, it creates, you know, we get our weather patterns usually from the jet stream, but that's a westerly flow. So it's blowing from west to east. Uh, we have the same type of westerly jet stream in the southern hemisphere, actually, that affects South America. So the same jet stream that's affecting the storms that we have in the in the United States is also present in South America. However, you are correct that in uh, in the tropics, uh, the the trade winds. So you've probably, if you've been to like Hawaii or you know nice tropical islands, uh, there's always a pretty constant like 10 to 15 mile per hour type of wind. It's usually coming uh, from the easterly direction. So it's winds blowing from east to west. Um, those are trade winds, and so th- that's a very uh, a common tropical uh, feature. And so depending on where you are uh, in the world, yes, you will experience different types of of uh, wind flows, and that does affect where you're likely to get uh, things like severe weather. My grandma was from Hawaii. And so if you've ever been to Hawaii, uh, they have a lot of wind sports like uh, windsurfing and kitesurfing. The winds there are so predictable and always from the same direction that people who do wind sports love it because you know exactly the direction it's coming from and you know the strength because it's, it's really predictable and a very constant feature of the climate. So, yeah. Okay, fascinating. Now, like... But so with like, what's the tornado alley area of like this of like South America then? Like with this like yes. Peru, like you tell us all about like this, like your studies. Yes, tell us all about it. Uh. Yes. Okay. So connecting this to the United States. So uh, the deepest convective uh, or the deepest thunderstorms on Earth occur in the vicinity or downstream of major mountain ranges. So in the U.S., we have the Rocky Mountains. Uh, this helps to kind of deflect flows. This brings a lot of moisture up from the Gulf of Mexico. And then we have our westerly flow coming from west to east over that region, basically providing a perfect environment for uh, severe weather um, mm-hmm. to form. In South America, we have a very similar setup. Uh, so if you imagine we have the 
giant Andes. The Andes are actually about double the average altitude of the Rockies. They're really mm. tall. It's like a wall. Uh, in South America, we actually have flow coming, uh, low-level flow coming down from the Amazon basin. The Amazon is is thought of as kind of an inland, kind of a green ocean. It's, there's lots of moisture. Uh, it's bringing that moisture down into Argentina uh, from the Amazon. And then we still have that westerly jet stream flow coming from west to east over the Andes. And so we have a very similar setup in terms of what we see uh, in both uh, continents. And so in Argentina, our, our tornado alley is actually displaced a little bit from the mountains, but it's kind of in middle to um, uh, eastern Argentina into Uruguay and southern Brazil. So they do see a lot of tornadoes in that region, just like we have a tornado alley here. And it's a similar setup in both places. And do they do like the F1 through F5 too? Like, is that like everywhere or no? They do, yes. Uh, so that's a pretty standard uh, way to rate the damage of a, of a, of a tornado. And so uh, they do use that. So when I've seen storm reports, although our storm reports in the United States, we have many, many more and a very nice archive. It's a little bit different in South America, but the storm reports I have seen, they do rate uh, the tornadoes based on the same scale uh, that we see in the U.S. Okay, and I feel like I have to ask. Do they twist the same way south of the hemisphere? They do, right? So that's a really, that's actually a very good question. I actually taught about this in my class the other day. Really? So, yes. So the effect of the rotation of the Earth only acts on really large scale flows. So really large, uh, you know, atmospheric motions. When we get down to the scale of tornadoes, uh, it actually doesn't, the rotation of the Earth actually doesn't have any effect on the actual rotation of the tornado. So we actually see tornadoes, even in the U.S., that rotate both directions. We have a preferential uh, rotation, uh, but it's not governed by the rotation of the Earth like uh, what we see with really large scale weather, weather patterns. This is going to bring up a lot more questions. Because don't <laughs> cyclones go the other? Oh, my God, we have to take a break. We're going to take a really quick break. We'll be right back with more Getting Curious after this. Just so everyone knows really quick after before we actually do literally take a break, because I don't think we've ever explained this. But, like, we do Getting Curious on a Zoom now, everyone listening. So we can see each other, Kristen and I, and then one of our producers, like, holds up this little break sign. But no one ever knows that. And then whenever, like, I see the break, it's really I'm horrific at acting like it. you don't see the break sign. And then I always audibly gasp. And um, <laughs> so it's fun if we leave that in this time because it's just, you know, it's, but we're going to take a really quick break now. I'll be right back with more Getting Curious after this. Welcome back to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Van Ness. So we just left you on such a major aha moment and we are very excited to learn more about this. But don't cyclones go the other way than hurricanes? So, uh, so large scale cyclones, uh, like, like tropical cyclones, uh, oh, cause those are gigantic. They're really big. Exactly. So they're very large. And so they are affected by the rotation of the earth. So you're correct that cyclones in the northern hemisphere, uh, they rotate the opposite direction in the southern hemisphere because they're large enough that they are affected by the rotation of the earth. But once you get to kind of smaller scales, uh, you know, like tornadoes and, and dust devils and things like that, even, you know, I've seen some YouTube videos of people showing their toilet spinning the other way in the southern hemisphere that doesn't that's actually not scientifically correct that actually those scales are not affected by being in the northern or the southern hemispheres okay can i just say that is i was when i went to japan and australia for the first time i was kind of devastated that it 
the water didn't go the other way. <laughs> yes, I've heard that actually a lot from uh, from people when I talk to, to people about that. People actually look. Uh, but yeah, just know that, you know, for for uh, large scales of the atmosphere, for under, you know, for for feeling the effects of rotation, uh, you really need to be kind of on the scale of like 2000 kilometers or bigger uh, in terms of horizontal scales. And so those are really big systems uh, that, that experience uh, the rotation of the Earth. OK, that's so fascinating. I can't stand it. So back to tornadoes. You said that some go left and some go right, like some twist both ways. And then you also said there's a preferential treat or so which way is preferred? So it depends on the um, it depends on the, the the wind shear. So wind shear is something. So it's basically changes in wind uh, speed and direction with height. And so uh, the wind shear actually provides spin in the atmosphere, and that's what actually uh, creates the tornado uh, when you tilt that uh, that shear up into the vertical. Um, that's a lot of uh, details there, but the it's really the um, the direction of the wind shear that act determines uh, what types of directions you can see with spin. And so in the southern hemisphere, we actually do see um, uh, kind of the opposite uh, framework in terms of wind shear. So we do see uh, kind of tornadoes that rotate uh, in different directions. Uh, but uh, like I said, in the, even in the northern hemisphere, we see both, uh, you know, cyclonic uh, clockwise and counterclockwise uh, rotation in uh, tornadoes. So are the tor- because so basically was the other piece of like the South American tornado alley like they're like they just don't there's not like one country to like monitor the like the severe weather and so there's not as clear of a record because it's between like Uruguay Uruguay and Brazil and Argentina. Yeah, so they, they do have um, some records of these events uh, going back into the past. The issue actually is that uh, Argentina just installed their first national radar network in 2015. So this was a very recent installation. This uh, And these radars are what we use uh, kind of we have a, a very extensive network in the U.S., uh, in South America, they didn't have this uh, this network, especially in Argentina, which is where we get these really uh, some of the most intense storms. And so it was really uh, the satellite based radar that showed that these storms are the, some of the most deep and intense storms that helped uh, convince, uh, you know, the country to actually implement their own uh, network. Because in terms of, you know, now casting and like predicting severe weather impacts for locals, if you have a radar, you know where it's coming. You know if it's a storm coming and how intense it is. If you don't have a radar, you're basically blind. I mean, you can see from the satellite, uh, but you don't know how intense or severe it is. And so for for protection of life and property, installing this network has really changed the way that uh, that, that Argentina can operate with storm reports and, and warnings. So that was okay. one of the reasons that this region didn't have this information. But now they do have this network and we work with their scientists in our field campaign and we're, you know, and they are, uh, you know, becoming really, uh, you know, advanced and sending like text messages uh, through cell phones and things like that for severe weather alerts to save, uh, you know, property and life, which is really fantastic. So you finished school in 2007 and then you went to South America and kind of brought a lot of like that is so you saw like a space and an area that needed help in this like predictive forecasting like area for severe weather that's right. Yeah, I, I used um, the satellite radar data to, during my PhD to really understand, you know, why do the storms occur there? Why are they so intense? The answer uh, is because of the Andes. The Andes produce a really severe uh, environment that creates uh, a really 
perfect environment for creating severe weather. Uh, we study these storms from satellite radars, but you know, we, we, the satellite only passes over a couple times per day. So we don't have the full life cycle of an entire system from beginning to end. And that's where we really wanted to go down and bring our own uh, instruments into the field, uh, do a research project. And so that's what we did. In 2018, we had a project called Relampago. Relampago actually means lightning in both Portuguese and Spanish. So we fit the acronym to the word, which is sometimes done. We brought radars. We had mobile radars where we were driving them around and placing them in good places. We had weather balloons, teams of students launching balloons, taking all types of weather observations. We had lightning observations. We had stream flow measurements, all kinds of things. And we were able to see the storms from beginning to end. And this has changed the way we can see the whole convective storm life like process. And that's something that we're currently doing research on now. Oh my God, tell me about it, whatever you can tell. So, but then there, a national one got installed in 2015. So did that kind of help like having that like foundation? It did. Yes. We were able to look at, uh, you know, some of the, the early data from that network and start to connect the pieces. Uh, so the nice thing with our research radars is we can actually go in and in real time, I'm changing the way that the radar is scanning. So I see a storm coming into the, to the radar domain and I say, okay, I want to scan this storm in a very particular way to meet my research objective. You can't do that normally with these operational radars. Um, but yes, the, the network has greatly helped understanding, uh, how these storms evolve in this region. Uh, okay. Summarizing the field campaign, it was an absolutely incredible opportunity and experience. I had studied these storms for basically 10 years remotely from a satellite before I actually went down into Argentina and saw them with my own eyes. It was an unbelievable experience. I remember seeing the thunderstorms for the first time and just being like, wow, this is so exciting uh, because I've studied these storms and I, they're some of the most intense ever you know, on the planet, except I haven't actually seen them with my own eyes. And that's that intuition uh, that when we go into the field, it's really important that we can see the things we're studying and we can understand uh, you know, uh, some more about them just by using our, our eyes. So were, what were you surprised by being there in real life? Yeah, uh, I think one of the things that we were most surprised by was the variability in a lot of the features we had kind of looked at from, uh, you know, from the previous research. So there's something called the low level jet that's bringing moisture down from the Amazon that I mentioned previously. Uh, this jet feature is really, uh, it's really important in the convective development perspective, but it is actually pretty variable. Uh, so the strength and how, how often it, it's there and what it looks like in the depth of the atmosphere. Uh, this is a really uh, thing that, uh, important thing that we were able to see because we had very rapid launches of, of uh, weather balloons to sample the full profile of the atmosphere and the winds. We also were really impressed by the fact that these storms are, uh, you know, we, we were seeing that they are, you know, really intense. They are, they do happen very frequently and they happen basically right against the, the foothills of the mountains. They they are initiating along the topography. The, the topography helps to lift the air a little bit higher and gives it a little bit of oomph to go, you know, for these updrafts. And so we were seeing this happening on a daily basis. These systems were really connected to the topography. And that was a hypothesis that I had based on the satellite radar uh, uh, data. But it was really great to go in the field and confirm that, yes, we are seeing this, but we are seeing lots of other very intricate, detailed processes that are happening uh, with the topography and the, the convective uh, storms that are that are happening in the region. So it's very exciting. And we're in active research mode right now, uh, trying to understand what we saw in the field. Is there any difference because like Tornado Alley in North America is like kind of plains-ish in that area? Is it or is that kind of like below the Amazon or is it not around yeah. it? 
so it's so it's south of the Amazon and it is actually fairly, uh, you know, it's kind of like cornfields. You know, they have they have soy oh. and so they have similar types of crops to what we have uh, in uh, kind of the Great Plains of the U.S. Uh, in Tornado Alley. So uh, the mountains are on the on the west side. But then as you go to the east, it's just basically flat. Uh, so it's very similar in terms of the setup to the United States, except that the Andes are much taller. Uh, it's a much taller mountain barrier. And we think that the, the, the actual the height of the Andes creates an environment that that, uh, that drives these more severe uh, storms in the in the Lee. That's fascinating. I can't get over how fascinating it is. So remember how you were telling us about the wall clouds earlier or like the layered like the clouds? Oh, like, yes. Well, yes. Do those ever create like severe thunderstorms or is it always the cumulative? Because I feel like those wall ones look kind of scary sometimes. Some of those kind of the like the flat layery, the stratus clouds. Yeah. yeah. So typically stratus clouds are uh, in environments that we call they're more stable environments. So they tend to not be as, uh, you know, as productive of kind of convective thunderstorms. Uh, we do see some, uh, you know, uh, for example, you know, at the upper parts of thunderstorms, you actually have a flat cloud uh, at the top. It's, we call this an anvil cloud. It's primarily composed of that wispy ice cirrus at the top because mm. it's really strong winds at the top and it's blowing all the particles around. Uh, but typically with stratus clouds, we, we typically do not expect to see severe weather impacts. You can see rain and things like that from stratus clouds, but you won't see tornadoes and, um, you know, hail and things like that from, from stratus clouds. So cumulus clouds are really the ones to, to be watching for if you're interested in severe weather. So what about the types of storms? There's like, is there, do you categorize storms in different ways? We do. Yes. So, uh, one of the things that I do in my research actually is looking across the globe at these satellite radar observations and categorizing them into different types. So uh, we, we use a uh, there's, um, you know, individual thunderstorms. If you think of kind of like heating from the surface, it's creating this individual cloud that, you know, you can kind of see this with your own eye. It looks like, you know, kind of a cellular cloud. We call these kind of uh, discrete or individual thunderstorms. So these are kind of they're just kind of one updraft. It's kind of its own cell. There's also something that uh, is something that I really am uh, interested in and, and something we're really working on studying in Argentina is something called mesoscale convective systems. These are when we have individual cells that start merging together into these giant complexes of storms. They're, they're very large. They uh, they develop their own kind of uh, flow through the storms and they can reinforce a lot of the motions. A lot of these are producing things like really strong winds. Uh, uh, you may have heard of things like bow echoes or squall lines. These types of storms are very squall intense. Line. Squall line. I've heard lines. of a squall line. Yes. It's basically a, a very... Uh, a line of very intense, uh, you know, convective updrafts that are all aligned along the same direction. Um, and they can be, you know, the definition is actually that they need to be 100 kilometers in, uh, you know, in the horizontal direction in any kind of given direction. So they're actually quite large systems. We see a lot of these in the central United States. Uh, if anybody lives in kind of the Tornado Alley uh, region, if you ever have kind of really intense convective uh, thunderstorms and rainfall in the middle of the night, uh, these are typically associated with these giant mesoscale convective complexes that are coming across the U.S. Um, as they are merging together and growing up into these really large systems. We see very frequent upscale growth. We call this upscale growth or convective organization in South America as well. And so that was one of the primary goals of our Relampago field campaign was to observe the convective organization process from beginning to end. So we start with, you know, daytime heating of the surface. We have individual cells that, that are basically coming up and forming because of the heating. Those cells begin to merge together. And at some point, basically, they maximize at midnight. They turn into these giant complexes that cause they're they're well known for causing flooding and really strong winds. Um, sometimes they can all also be associated with hail. 
and occasionally tornadoes as well. So there are there's a whole spectrum of, of storm types. And so we try to categorize them um, in these ways. But in terms of the convective storms, this is kind of one of the, the things we do. There's also tropical cyclones. There's, you know, there's all kinds of other clouds. We have large uh, extra tropical cyclones. These are kind of our winter storms, you know, associated with the really large scale weather patterns. Uh, there's very specific clouds and storms that are associated with uh, with those types of structures as well. So that is something that we are working on doing. And uh, it's, it's a really active part of our research is categorizing the types of weather that we see. What are some of the different convective Thunderstorm type categorizations that we're getting or doing, is it like little bit, big ass one, like, like Eastern sheer storm? Like what are, (laughs) how are you doing it? So one of the, so in the, in the convective storm category, so these are basically like your cumulus types of clouds. We have one where we call it's a shallow isolated cloud. So we restrict it to be under five kilometers in depth. So it's a really shallow, very small type of system. We see these kind of in the maritime regions. You know, if you're sitting on the beach and in Hawaii, you look out, you see these little tiny popcorns. Those are the types of clouds we're trying to identify with that category. We also calls, uh, have a category called deep convective thunderstorms. This is basically where we look at the intensity, uh, using radar, uh, observations, we, how um, how high a very intense echo reaches uh, in the atmosphere. And so we actually can tell how intense the storm is by how high up uh, this very intense uh, value of reflectivity is in the atmosphere. And so we try to categorize them based on their intensity. Uh, What's that, that bow echo that you were saying earlier? What's that? Do? Yeah, a bow echo is, a, um, is in kind of the mesoscale convective system category where it's basically, it's got kind of a bow shape. If you think of like a bow oh, and yeah, arrow. Oh yeah, the squall line. Yeah, uh-huh, it's like exactly. Yes, it's it's a type of squall. You know, it's it's in that uh, it's a it's a subset of a squall line. Uh, but it's usually uh, there's like a convective line that's very well defined at the front that's r- rushing forward, and then behind it you actually have stratiform precipitation. So you have things like more like stratus types of clouds, more layered clouds behind it. And so these structures are very very common uh, in in especially kind of in the Midwest uh, in tornado alley regions uh, in kind of the late spring uh, summer timeframe. Uh, so you'll see these giant complexes moving through. Uh, and, and that's kind of, yeah. So th- those are the bow echoes. Okay. Fascinating. And we, and we do see that sort of, is it the same time of year that we see that in the South American part two it or is, is it a yes. different time of year? It is. It's just their spring and summer in the Southern hemisphere. So yeah, it's the same, same idea. It's uh, the reason is it's when the cold air from the, from the Arctic is, is mashing up with the tropical air. Uh, that oh. happens a lot in the spring and the summer. And so when that happens, this is a great time for severe weather to occur in, in both hemispheres. So within the active times, it, it, I guess I, I wrote down a couple of times, like, why? Like, why is there some days when is the heat builds up and like the singular cell, like clouds come up and then they form together and they become like the bigger squall line? Is there sometimes where it seems hot and humid, but then it just doesn't really develop. And then other days it's like a massive tornado and a massive flood. Like, do we, is that, I mean, I guess that's obviously the point to like protect people's lives, like in Twister, but, and property too, but more lives, but, yeah, and cows, but like, <laughs> why does it trigger sometimes so much worse than other times? What have we learned? Well, what yeah, have you that's learned? A great, that's a great question. So um, there's been a lot of work in the U.S. Uh, looking at kind of, the uh, the connection between the warm air mass and the colder air mass that are coming down from the north and the warmer air masses coming up from the south, where these air masses meet is a really great place to expect uh, severe weather. 
However, I also told you that in uh, the deepest convective storms or the most intense thunderstorms that we see on the Earth uh, happen near major mountain ranges. And so what happens is that let's let's take the North America example uh, here. Uh, what happens is in the kind of the late spring and summer, we have a uh, low level flow or a wind that comes from the Gulf of Mexico. This is bringing really juicy, moist, warm air from the Gulf of Mexico up into, uh, you know, Texas and, uh, and through the Midwest and Tornado Alley. The same time we have flow coming up and over the Rockies. So that westerly jet stream flow is coming up and over the Rockies. And what this does is that flow is actually drier. So it's basically providing a, a capping inversion. We call this a cap. The way to think about this is if you have a soda bottle, right? And you have a, and you put a cap on it and you shake it up. Uh, what you're doing is you're basically, you're not allowing that warm and moist air that really wants to rise up in the atmosphere. You're, you're placing a barrier over it mm. and it cannot rise when it wants to. And it, that instability and that energy is building and building and building until it can be released by, uh, various things. So, um, the, in the U.S., we have, you know, various things that, that release that energy. And that's when we get our vi- really violent, uh, thunderstorms that produce tornadoes. So we as atmospheric scientists and meteorologists, we look for environments where we have these flow features, uh, that are kind of coincident siding uh, in the vertical. And also when we have re- the buildup of energy, we have parameters that we can use to diagnose how much energy is available. If a convective parcel could rise in the atmosphere, how much energy would it have? And we can directly compare that to how strong the um, the vertical motion or the updraft would be. So we, we for forecasting, that's how we that's how we do that. Okay, we're going to take a really quick break. Listen to these few commercials that we're going to be right back with more Professor Kristen Rasmussen after this. Welcome back to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Van Ness. I hope you remember what we were talking about because I have a question. What? Like, so you're basically studying how much energy it would have if there was a storm that could pop up there, right? Exactly. Yes, exactly. So you're you're studying like predictability. Mm -hmm. Yep, exactly. Yep. So if that storm could realize that energy, how severe might it become? And that's something we can measure from a weather balloon. That's why we launched so many weather balloons is to really understand the vertical profile of the atmosphere. And uh, we can calculate these parameters directly from uh, data from weather balloons. Mm -hmm. So how thick is like a really severe storm? Like how thick would the cloud be on like a really severe one? Uh, so a lot of times the severe storms go all the way from uh, like the cloud base all the way up to the top of the, the troposphere. So the troposphere is kind of the lowest, uh, you know, layer of the atmosphere where all of our weather and our clouds and our rain and all of our kind of the things that we experience on the planet Earth are located. Uh, I think it's about uh, I can't. Well, I think of it in kilometers. Uh, if yeah, that makes sense. So thinking about like you know like ten, uh, ten to fifteen kilometers or so. Uh, sometimes getting up to seventeen or eighteen or twenty, depending on where you are. It actually varies depending on if you're in the tropics or the poles. So it, it's a it's a uh, where that is uh, varies. Uh, but you know a lot of times we can see storms. You know, for example, in Argentina, we see storms that get to twenty kilometers in altitude above the surface of the Earth, which is extremely high and very very deep. As so you can imagine, there's a lot of space in that cloud to create, you know, to have lots of air motions to to build large precipitation particles, to have hail uh, that's growing in the in the column. And so uh, there's a lot of uh, a lot of space to do that vertically. So essentially, like a tornado is like a rotating cloud that what's a funnel cloud? How does it work? What happens up in there that it's like I'm going to spit out a rotating arm of death? Yes. Like what happens in the cloud? 
So uh, funnel cloud, uh, just it's actually just a like a tornado that's starting to form that hasn't yet reached the surface. So when it's just kind of in the in the air, uh, we call that a funnel cloud. Once it reaches the surface, it's called a tornado. Essentially, what's happening is that uh, we have I talked about wind shear. So this is changes in winds with uh, with height and with direction. So this is causing spin in the environment. So we're basically having rotation in the environment. What happens when that uh, horizontal spin in, intersects with something like a convective updraft, so we have very vigorous air moving up, it tilts that spin up into the vertical. And a lot of times by, by stretching that column, a lot of times it spins up much, much faster and can create the very, really strong rotations that we see with tornadoes. You can imagine something like, uh, you know, an ice skater. So an ice skater, when they're spinning around, they've got their arms out to start. They bring their arms in and they conserve angular momentum. And so because of that, they start to spin much faster when their arms come in. Their center of mass is much closer to the center. It's the same thing with tornadoes. We're stretching that column. We're, we're shrinking it and it spins up. Uh, really fast, and a lot of times that's why we see our tornadoes that um, uh, that have these really vigorous uh, rotations. Sometimes when you see videos of tornadoes, it looks like they meet kind of like in the middle, like it almost like comes from like you, like like from the ground up, you know. So that's yes, almost kind yes. of what's happening. Then it sounds like. Yeah, so there is actually an active research debate on kind of if the tornadoes are coming from the ground up or from the, the top down. Um, so there is some active research on that, but I think the the uh, the research community agrees that it's the like the the change of that horizontal rotation into the vertical direction that is really uh, responsible for at least creating the spin that we need for the tornadoes. But you're correct that actually, uh, you know, uh, there is actually a debate on whether it's coming from the top or the bottom. Okay, so I went a little bit. I, okay. Horizontal spin turning vertical. So where is the horizontal spin happening? That's just because, oh, oh, is that from the weather just coming from west to east, but then the warm air is coming up from the Gulf of Mexico? So where is the, so is the horizontal spinning, is that the warm air coming up from like the Gulf of Mexico? Some of it is, yeah. So it's it's basically just changes with winds as you go up in height, uh, and so the the low level jet bringing wind up, uh, moisture from the Gulf of Mexico, and then the upper level flow uh, coming in a different direction. That's creating a spin. That's a change in direction of oh, height. And yeah, so we're yeah. looking at it. So it's basically that energy that's creating a rotation in the environment, and then we're taking that rotation and spit and basically tilting it up into the vertical along a convective updraft, and that's a lot of times what creates. Um, the tornado itself. Okay. I also wrote down like the Himalayas like 18 times. Because yes. yes. what about them? Don't they have some tall things? Is there like an accidental tornado alley over there that no one even knows about? Like next to Tibet or Nepal or something? And we need to get a radar over there because do they not have a radar? So that's a fantastic question. Uh, so I've actually done some work looking at the northwestern indentation of the Himalayas near Pakistan and northwestern India. There is actually a very a strong convective hotspot that happens right there. There's some very deep storms, uh, lots of lightning, uh, really very, you know, very tall cumulonimbus types of clouds that happen in that region as well. And so, yes, the, when I when I talk about this kind of globally, the Andes, the Himalayas and the Rockies are the three places on Earth that spawn the largest and most intense thunderstorms on the planet. And yeah, I, I didn't mean to exclude the Himalayas, but yes, the Himalayas create really, really strong storms as well. Um, you didn't see- exclude them, Queen. I was just curious because <laughs> they're... I just, you know, I remembered, I love geography. It's like randomly, I don't know. Like, I mean, I, don't, I just liked it in eighth grade. 
But anyway, yes, keep going. Yes. Um, and so uh, I don't think that they see as many of the kind of like a tornado alley like uh, we do here in the U.S. Uh, the uh, the way that the mountains are set up, uh, you know, with the Himalayas being mostly an east-west barrier, create a slightly different kind of environment in terms of how these storms grow uh, once they form. However, Bangladesh is a really fascinating location. They have uh, tornadoes and very severe weather, uh, really big hail. Um, and it's it's something that uh, is not very well studied. And it's actually something that's on my list of research topics to look at because it's a very understudied region. They have very severe weather uh, and we don't really understand fully uh, why this is the case. And so, uh, yes, near these big mountain ranges, we do expect to see these severe weather um, types of events. But uh, depending on the, you know, the orientation, the geography and the flows, it's all different. And this makes, you know, this makes it really exciting to study different places around the world. I need to remember where Bangladesh is. Yeah, where yes, it's, it's, it's closer to kind of the um, the, the um, eastern side of the Himalayas. Uh, it's kind of east of the of, of uh, uh, on the eastern side of India. So it's it's displaced from kind of where I originally talked about in the northwestern indentation near Pakistan and in northwestern India. Uh, but it is a well-known place that experiences very frequent severe weather uh, that, you know, that deserves more study uh, from from our field. And do they have like the west east flow there, too, of the? Yes, they do. Yep. They are. They experience the, the jet stream there as well. However, because of all the land masses and, and Europe and the mountains, uh, the jet stream is actually significantly disrupted. And so it kind of meanders quite a bit and it moves around a lot. Um, it uh, And so there's some impacts there. But yes, they do generally have the west east flow as well. So really right now. You either can do satellite monitoring of clouds or radar based monitoring. But if you do radar, like you have to have it like, you know, installed like in a network so that like lots of scientists can like monitor where it is relative to like the ground that it's covering. That's right. Yeah, the, the ground-based radars cover about 150 kilometer radius around the instrument. So it's a really nice uh, platform and it gives us a ton of information, but they fairly, they're fairly localized. So like in the U.S., you have to have a network of them to see storms uh, moving over time. With satellites, though, it's really exciting, like with uh, like geostationary satellites that sit over a specific spot and look at the clouds over time. You can really see the changes in time of these systems. But with these large types of satellites, uh, they don't actually see the internal components of the storms. And so the uh, the radars on the satellites uh, pass over just a couple times a day. Uh, but they do look at the full, uh, you know, the, the full three dimensional perspective of the storm. So we try to use a combination of all these tools and also models. We use mesoscale models to try to simulate the atmosphere and what what the storms do uh, to connect the pieces. So when you look at all the data that you've been able to collect over your career and you look at specifically like the strong thunderstorm data and we'd mentioned it before, like a little tiny bit. But what are it's really just like a geographic location that determines like if it turns into a tornado or not? Yes, that's absolutely right. Yes. So we do see that kind of the the places where we expect to see the most vigorous uh, severe weather um, happen because they're near these major mountain ranges. So it's geographically uh, tied to large mountain ranges, large terrain features that, that cause flows to, to flow in different directions. Uh, I've done some experiments actually with my research where I changed the mountains. So I, had, I did a, a really fun paper where I took the Andes and I reduced it by half. I just you know made it 50% of its height and it completely changed the way that the convective storm population downstream of the Andes formed uh, simply by changing the mountains. And so, uh, yeah, the geographical perspective is really important and understanding the topography is also really important. 
Okay, so my hometown, Quincy, is like on a bluff. And so one thing that they used to say to me growing up when I was so obsessed with Twister is like a lot of the severe weather would like kind of bounce off the bluff and like kind of go over Quincy. And so a lot of the tornadoes would happen like right east of Quincy. And if we ever saw the weather coming back from the east, like go to your basement. And like any of the times where like there was really severe weather, it was like coming back from the east because it had like you know, like the clouds would like come back from the east because it like was making like a thing. But why is it that like all of this similar, but maybe for me, because I was like, you know, 10 and didn't have like access to all of that data. But like, mm-hmm. why is it sometimes like on July 10th, if all things seem equal, like one storm produces like a horrific tornado and then another thunderstorm is just like rain, some thunder and like doesn't have the vertical or doesn't have doesn't create a tornado. Like it's, I guess just like something in the atmosphere was just different that time. It wasn't rolling as hard or wasn't as differentiating of like cold air meeting hot air or something. Yeah. I I think it, it determines, uh, you know, the, the threat of severe weather. A lot of times we look at the thermodynamic profile. So this is from the weather balloons. We're looking at the warm air and the cold air kind of where they're meeting and how, uh, how they, how they interact. Uh, we diagnose, kind of where where we think and how active we think the environment will be based on that parameter that basically estimates the amount of available potential energy in the system. Uh, but you're right that, you know, we could have the same value of potential energy and we could have a storm that produces a tornado and also a storm that doesn't produce a tornado. And so that's a very active uh, area of research. It's actually very hard to know which individual storm is going to produce tornadoes. That's, that's some of, you know, very active research in the severe weather community, because if we could tell which storm was going to produce a tornado, we could provide much more accurate and more timely uh, uh, warnings to the population. It's actually very, very hard to do that. We have really great tools and weather models that can tell us, you know, all the combinations of factors that come together that are likely to produce these severe weather events. But the individual systems or, se- or storms that produce the tornadoes, it's really, really challenging to know exactly which ones are are going to be the severe ones. And so that's something that people do every day uh, in terms of their their research topic is to, f- to figure out why that that uh, difference occurs. So I mean, we, I feel like we can't talk about clouds and severe weather without talking about global warming. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I always think about like the devil's advocate way of like what like a Trump supporter would say to that. Like storms have been around forever. I bet there's been big storms, you know, blowing down a dinosaur's house. Like we're probably not whatever, but I'm I, I, I don't believe this. I'm very much a climate change believer. But I'm curious to hear from a scientist who's like studying data and comparing data over long periods of time. And you've also worked shoulder to shoulder, I'm guessing with other scientists who have been doing it for a lot longer than you. Um, Obviously you guys can't see Kristen, but she is very much in our age. We already said it. You're in sixth grade when you saw Twister. So, but I'm just guessing like, I mean, I, when I first started doing hair, I was doing hair with like some of my favorite hairdressers. It's like one lady named Sue who was like 68. And some of her clients were like literally like 99 and a hundred. And like, they'd been coming to her like on an every weekly basis for like 40 years and, and plus time. So what are like the other scientists in the community say? And how can just knowing like awful, like ridiculous climate change denying comments, like, can you speak to some of the ways in which you interact with climate change on a daily basis? Sure. Yeah. So uh, we are um, in in the science field. Uh, you know, the climate change is kind of just a, a fact that we all, you know, are, are on board with. Um, we're seeing impacts of climate change already happening in our in our world now. 
Um, you know, we've broken lots of records for rainfall. We've had, you know, crazy, you know, tropical cyclones like, you know, Hurricane Harvey delivering an amazing amount of rain. We've broken so many rainfall records in just the past five years um, that that's actually something that I actually am hoping to study is heavy rainfall production. Uh, but in terms of climate change, we're actually making really exciting advances in terms of being able to understand clouds and climate change. So traditionally, uh, climate climate models are used uh, to kind of understand how climate will change kind of, you know, hundreds of years in the future and also in the past. Right. We can see what happened in the past and look in the future. However, a lot of climate models have fairly, um, you know, big grid sizes. So they have, you know, you know, 100 kilometer or so grid boxes where a lot of the clouds that I've been talking about today are much smaller than that 100 kilometer grid size. So a lot of my colleagues and, and a lot of my collaborators were actually working on very high resolution uh, simulations using climate change, uh, using climate models to drive our high resolution models. So we can actually understand the processes of how clouds may change in, a, in an environment that has warmer temperatures temperatures and has, has more moisture. So it's it's um, it's very well known that uh, when we have uh, increasing greenhouse gases, we have uh, warming temperatures. What happens when we have warmer temperatures is the air mass actually can hold more water vapor. So we can actually have more water vapor in the air, which is directly uh, related to our production of clouds. And so I've actually done a lot of detailed research on understanding how the clouds may look in a future climate, maybe 100 years in the future. And it's it's revealed some really fascinating things that I can talk about with respect to even our discussion of severe weather environments uh, that we can learn something about how these these clouds may change. Tell us, how are they yeah. going to change? Okay, so that um, that uh, environment, the the energy available for storms that I was talking about, it's it's basically uh, the the terms that go into that equation are basically moisture and temperature. That's primarily what it is. We calculated this same uh, index in the future, 100 years in the future over the United States. And what we found was that the energy that was available for storms uh, in the future is increasing by quite a bit. So we have more energy available for the storms to tap into. However, I also talked about the cap, right? The, the soda bottle with the cap on top, that the strength of that cap is actually very important in understanding if we can get a storm or not. If the cap is too strong, the lid can't come off and the storm actually may not form at all. And so what we looked at is we also looked at the strength of the capping inversion in the future, and we found that that also increased in strength. So we have more energy available for storms to tap into, but we also have more energy suppressing those storms in the future environment. What this leads to is uh, the, the storms that can break out of that cap, that can kind of break out of the soda bottle, when they can realize that enhanced amount of energy, they become extremely intense. They're way more severe than the ones we see in the current climate. But the weaker to moderate storms that we see in the current climate, those ones are preferentially suppressed. They don't actually tend to occur as frequently in the future. So our, po our population of storms is actually shifting uh, more toward a severe weather type of environment. Um, and we see more frequent severe weather less frequent kind of weak to moderate storms. And this is very concerning for those of us living in places like Tornado Alley that, that experience these very strong storms right now. With a warmer climate, we expect these, these storms to become more frequent and also more intense. What about for agriculture with just like making normal precipitation? Like, wouldn't that have a bad effect on like growing vegetables and fruits and stuff? It would, yes. So, uh, you know, most of the precipitation that we see across the, the growing region of the U.S., 
comes from those weaker moderate uh, types of systems. So we may see changing patterns of precipitation, um, how often the precipitation is falling, where it's falling, uh, the season, the growing season, things like that. Uh, these are all very concerning things. So if you're if you're interested in agriculture and this is kind of like your livelihood, or if you're interested in kind of the hail, uh, you know, impacts on you know on crops and things like that, uh, this is is very an important issue and it's a very concerning thing to be thinking about with respect to kind of mitigation of these of these uh, potential in- impacts. Uh, one thing that I've liked to think about, especially this year, is like this idea of activism and this idea. Well, obviously, I've always been a fan of activism, but this idea that we all have like a place where we can be active and we all have like a lane that we can become really into. And I think that science is such a cool place for folks to do that, because if you're naturally into it and you're naturally like, you know, driven by it and want to study it, you can affect so much change. And there's so much to get into. There's just so much richness to immerse yourself in and and to have a purpose and a drive. And that's just so amazing. And I think one thing that I would love to just ask about is how has your life been fulfilled by your relationship to science and specifically for women that are listening One of my favorite guests we ever got to interview was Dr. Edith Edgar, and she's a psychologist and this Holocaust survivor, and she's just incredible. And one thing that she said is when she was like, when someone suggested to her that she should get her doctorate, she was like, I'll be 50. And then her friend was like, you'll be 50 anyway, girl. So like, it's never too late, essentially was like what it you know means to what I took from that story. So what would you say to someone who's like, I think I might be really interested in Twister and science and clouds too, or it's always been electricity or whatever the fuck I'm into. Maybe it's not science and clouds, but I think I really want to get into it. What what do you say to, to someone like that? I would say just follow that, follow that down as long as you can. I mean, I think natural curiosity about our world is really, really fascinating. There are so many topics, especially with climate change and environmental uh, kind of issues with kind of uh, all these types of things related to climate change and the impacts in different places around the world. This is a really exciting time to be in in these types of fields. Uh, we're talking to policymakers. We're talking to people who do air, air pollution. We've had crazy wildfires here in Colorado. Uh, we think they're uh, likely, you know, wildfires are expected to become more frequent and, and we are we feel like we're seeing that impact already. So there's so many things we're seeing in our day-to-day lives that are affected already by the changes in our climate. And there's, you know, we just have uh, kind of a, a future path where we have to understand uh, what's going to happen. We have to have changes and, you know, uh, policy changes that have, you know, that Per, per, uh, prevent, you know, all of these greenhouse gases and things like that from being released so that we can stop, uh, you know, the rising temperatures and things like that. So for people interested in science, I say, you know, for me, I am very fulfilled by thinking about the world and learning something new about what we're what we see in our world and also trying to help people and make changes. Right. We want to go into places like, you know, uh, places where they have really severe weather. They don't have a great warning system or they don't understand how these systems move because their their networks are uh, are not present. How we can help people and make make a change, I think, is is one of the things that motivates me. And I really love that atmospheric science is very tangible. Like I can talk to you about clouds. We can look out the window and look at clouds and think about how they look in, in models and things like that. Uh, that's one of the things I love talking about. And so I, I would just recommend uh, to follow your passion and follow the interests and, you know, see where it leads you. There are so many interesting careers that are happening in the environmental and uh, geosciences right now. And, and, you know, I'm always happy to talk to people if they want to contact me as well about about those types of things obsessed and then I feel like we've gotten to the point in the conversation where it's like I 
I can't tell if I missed anything because I was thinking so much about Helen Hunt and Twister and clouds and severe weather. But if there's something that we've missed or we should have talked about that, like, I just did not hit because I was like too fascinated with like Twister and picking your brain for this glorious hour that we've been chatting. But is there anything you would just be remiss if you didn't mention in our interview time together or that I really should have asked out that I didn't? Well, I, you know, I, I think that there's a couple things, uh, other types of things that I do in terms of research. Uh, we're also looking at the impacts of flash flood producing storms in a future climate. So we're actually identifying specific storms that have produced flash floods in the current climate and seeing how they would look if they were happening in a warmer and moister climate. That research has produced really fascinating results that show that we we think that uh, we're getting really uh, a lot heavier rainfall and more total rainfall in these flash flood producing storms in the future climate that has implications for things like Hurricane Harvey and a lot of the really heavy producing storms that we have now. Climate change is expected to basically increase those rain totals, and that's very concerning for places, especially in the Mississippi River Basin, where the infrastructure there is outdated. It's 50 years outdated. It was built in the 1930s. It was, has a 50-year life cycle, and we're well past that, and we're having incredible problems with levees breaking and with dams and, and issues along the Mississippi Basin. We expect to see greater impacts in future floods as well. Um, I also am doing work on snowpack. So I live in Colorado. Snow is a really big topic here. Uh, well, people love skiing and snowboarding. And we're trying to understand how in the future climate, how the snowpack may change. Is the snow season changing? Is the, is the amount changing? How will climate change affect, you know, where we get snow? It's it's warming as we go up. The, the snow is isolated to kind of the higher parts of the mountains. And so that's another topic that I'm doing that, you know, is not related to kind of the warm season kind of convective storms that I'm that I'm interested in. But I am interested in all types of clouds and precipitation that happen, especially near mountains. So just wanted to mention that uh, just to kind of uh, bring that up. So is the snow getting way less? Are we are we just all fucked up? So it's kind of a mixed mixed package and mixed results. We actually are seeing that there's more precipitation, but more of that precipitation is falling as rain compared to snow, right? So it's a little bit warmer in the environment. We're also seeing that as you go up in altitude, uh, you actually, you, you can see that the snow line is actually moving a little bit higher. Um, however, uh, you know, the, the, the key takeaway from one of our projects is that kind of, it looks like the season is shortening. So the, you know, when we get snow in the fall and when we kind of melt the snow out in the spring, it seems like that season is shortening. Uh, and so that's important important if you're in the ski industry and things like that to know uh, these types of parameters and to be able to prepare, right? So, so, you know, maybe you need to have more snow machines or something like that to to kind of mitigate for the natural precipitation that, that's changing. So, um, but there will still be snow to ski on and, and things like that. It just, it, it may look a little bit different in a hundred years. But essentially, as far as like the whole thing with, you know, that upper bottle lid, and then as our stuff becomes warmer and wetter, it's like, that doesn't only apply to like more severe tornadoes and less medium rain. It also means like when we do have a flash flood, it's like bigger and worse flash floods. It's like all the storms become more severe and potentially farther apart. But when they do happen more severe. That's right. Yeah, it's applying to a lot of the warm season storms. A lot of the floods uh, are happening kind of in the warm season as well. So this is, you know, this is something we're trying to connect. And it's really exciting. And actually, this is a very cutting edge part of our field is that we're able to now look at these very significant impacts at very high resolution, right? So much smaller scale. These are four kilometer horizontal resolution models. So I can resolve things like rivers and lakes and, you know, like things like that, that are of interest to people, you know, the Army Corps of Engineers or our or people that are actually interested in the you know specific geographic points of interest, we're able to start looking at these local impacts, which is really important for stakeholders and for people with applications in snow or flooding or whatever it is. And so this is kind like of like if really your house exciting. is on a lake, like if you yeah, if exactly. you live on it. 
we can start to try to see kind of what we what we can see in this general area. And, you know, that like kind is of your house going to be underwater in 50 years? <laughs> that, that's you know, that is something that I know people are looking at. There's there are a lot of sea level rise and kind of uh, those types of models uh, that are that are trying to estimate those things. And we're getting to higher and higher resolution. And so we're able to look at these processes more specific and more localized, which is very exciting in our in our field. Yes, predictive technology. Yes, oceanic realness. Professor Kristen Rasmussen, thank you so much for your time. I'm so grateful for you and for your work. And thank you for coming on Getting Curious. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Van Ness. My guest this week was Assistant Professor of Atmospheric Science at Colorado State University, Kristen Rasmussen. You can find links to her work in the episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thank you so much to her for letting us use it. If you enjoyed our show, please introduce a friend to it and show them how to subscribe. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at CuriousWithJVN. Our socials are run and curated by Emily Bosick. Our editor is Andrew Carson, and our transcriptionist is Cassie Jerkins. Getting Curious is produced by me, Erica Ghetto, Emily Bosick, Chelsea Jacobson, and Colin Anderson.